Well, this morning, as we turn our attention to the book of Philippians, we'll be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is a rhetorical question, but I want to know, I guess if it's rhetorical, I'm not going to be able to know, but I want to, I thought that was me, I was freaking out. Can't, can't be me. I'm on airplane mode. I like to write letters. Handwritten letters. It's something weird that I think my family used to do. My grandmother uh, mirrored that and, and just kind of was the, the image and the exemplar of writing letters. My grandfather writes letters. And then getting into seminary, uh, began to write letters uh, because pastors of old wrote letters. So if you want to be a real pastor, you do what real pastors used to do. And, and my wife loves letters. She loves cards on birthdays, on holidays like Mother's Day. And I'm always, when I'm writing these letters, I'm always cognizant of how many times have I said the word I? Because you write this letter most often, to try and encourage or to, to share, hey, I'm thankful for you. I'm grateful for you. But even in that, what did I say? I am grateful for you. And so I'm just trying to be cognizant of, I don't want it to just be all about me when I'm trying to say, I love you. <laughs> Sometimes there's no ways to get around it. But in this letter to the Philippian church, Paul starts this greeting. And in this greeting, he does exactly what you'd expect from a greeting, especially uh, consistent with that of the first century AD, where he says, this is who's writing to you. This is who I'm writing to. And this is a brief opening of what I want to say. So it follows a lot of the same things that our typical letters say. I remember in first grade, we would write out the to and from and make sure the address was in the right place. And you were taught to write a letter. Paul similarly is doing the same thing, but its content is markedly different than the majority of our letters, if we think about it. Because Paul's greeting isn't just a disconnected, hey, I'm thankful for you, though it certainly is that. It's not just, I love you, though it certainly is that. Paul's greeting is a gospel-centered greeting in the way that he talks about himself, in the way that he talks about the recipients, the church there in Philippi, and then the message by which he just gives a foretaste of what's going to flow out from the rest of this letter. Because we think about this, and we might think, well, this is the book of Philippians, Certainly, in the way that it is in our Bible, it is a book, but it is a letter. It is an epistle. It is a general epistle, a letter to a specific people. So with that brief introduction, let's get into Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If you would stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you 
and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord receive honor in the reading of his word. You may be seated. I mentioned in Sunday school that I'm a fan of the Hamilton soundtrack. I'm not speaking in a room of high school girls, so there's no, yeah, Hamilton. I love the Hamilton soundtrack. I love uh, its historical content, whether factual or uh, (laughs) fictional in some areas. But in one of the songs in the Hamilton soundtrack, there's this dialogue that I'm sure if I would have gone back in archives, I could see uh, the, the letters that were written between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. Aaron Burr at the time being the vice president of the United States, I believe the second vice president uh, in the United States history. And they end their letter by saying this. I am delighted to be your obedient servant. And then I sign a burr. Then Alexander responds with a letter that ends, I am delighted to be your obedient servant, A. Ham. Well, if you know what was in those letters, it was them feuding with one another. These are the wrongs that you've done to me over these years and through my career. And Alexander coming back and saying, here's 30 years of every single wrong that you've done to me. So let's just air our grievances. But I'm delighted to be your obedient servant. If you know the rest of the story, it wasn't long after those letters were penned where they end up in a duel. And Aaron Burr ends up shooting Alexander Hamilton, ultimately killing him. But wait a second. I am delighted to be your obedient servant. So we see that words aren't always backed up with actions. But what does Paul say in his opening letter, Paul and Timothy. Paul is the author of the letter. Timothy has been a part of Paul's ministry and and journeys there in Philippi. Uh, Timothy being a part of uh, Paul's ministry uh, was circumcised to do ministry both among Gentiles and Jews. And how does Paul mention them together? Servants of Christ Jesus. Commentators would say that this usage of the Greek word should actually be more accurately rendered not as servants, but as slaves. Slaves of Christ Jesus. Those who have been brought under his wings by trusting in him. We heard in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Derek read our scripture reading, that Paul said this gospel came to me not of my own doing, not by men, but as revealed by God. And that his apostleship was given to him by Jesus as one untimely born. Paul saying, I'm not worthy. So as Paul writes this letter, he wants the Philippian church to know that we are servants. We are Slaves of Jesus Christ. We're not coming here to peddle our own message. We're not here to say something new. We're here to say exactly what Jesus would have us say. 
We talked just briefly last week that Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a military powerhouse, so to speak. There were historical battles that happened there that set forth the, the Roman conquering of that day. That day. And so you have senators, you have governors in the Roman legion. You have all of these ways to say that I'm better than that person. And I'm definitely better than that person. But Paul doesn't come and say, hey, I'm an apostle. Right? He doesn't come and, and give that flex at this point, though he could. What does he say to the Philippian church? A slave that comes and is the foundation for him to say, have this own mind of yours that is Christ Jesus. Humble yourselves. Paul exemplifying that message humbles himself in the way that he writes this letter as slaves of Christ Jesus. But he says, Paul and Timothy. I mentioned Paul likely wrote the letter. Timothy is, in one sense, a deliverer of the letter. Paul is trying to give his commendation to fellow laborers in this ministry. Remember, where is Paul? He's in prison. His movement throughout the Middle East is a little hindered at this point. So he commends others throughout this letter, and he commends Timothy just as he commends himself as a slave a servant of Christ Jesus. That's who's writing the letter. That's the posture, the humble posture that Paul is taking in this letter. So that's the from. He moves into the second half of verse 1 to the recipients. Who is he writing to? We see that this letter is pinned to the Philippian church. To the Philippian church. But Paul says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Let's just stop right there and take that at face value. Paul is writing to all the church members. No, that's not what he says. To all the pastors. No, that's not what he says. To all the saints. Often we can hear that word saint based on Catholic upbringing or other things, hear the word saint, and you're like, oh, well, that's, we're not really, we're not saints. Like, they're saints. And we're just kind of like the riffraff. No, we need to know that throughout the New Testament, the gospel writers, uh, certainly Paul and others, Peter, James, the writer of Hebrews, would say that those who are in Christ have trusted in him. They're no longer sinners. They're no longer this or that. They're saints. Holy ones set apart by God and for his glory. So positionally, we need to know that if we are in Christ, if we have placed our faith in him and are walking in a life of repentance, we are saints. In the eyes of God the Father, because he sees us behind Christ, he sees saints. 
So positionally, we are saints, but we still have this reminder to act saintly, to act holy, to follow the words and prescriptions given from the Bible, from Jesus, the apostles, and those who have written the scripture. So Paul is saying, I'm not just writing to the church, I'm writing to the saints in Christ who are in Philippi. I love this phrase, in Christ. If you've been around me long enough, you know that Ephesians is my favorite book of the Bible. I think it's phenomenal. And there are 65 other books of the Bible that are phenomenal too. But Ephesians is just littered with in Christ. In Christ. I remember my sophomore year of college, I just heard a sermon preached on Ephesians chapter 1 where the phrase in Christ is almost like multiple times in each verse. (laughs) But it says, because you're in Christ, you are this. Because you are in Christ, you are this. You're a son. Because you're in Christ, you're blessed. Because you're in Christ, you have every spiritual blessings in, in the heavenlies. Because you're in Christ, in Christ is one of the most pivotal understandings that we as believers need to have. So these saints are in Christ, living in Philippi, living in this Gentile, Macedonian, Roman colony. He doesn't say live life this way. He doesn't say live life this way. He says you're saints in Christ to then come later in chapter one and say live life worthy of this gospel. If you're a saint, live this out. So this message that has been proclaimed through Acts 16 and Acts 17, where Paul and Silas go to Philippi and see this gospel seed being sown in the lives of those who have never heard of Christ. Who hear and upon hearing profess faith in Christ. It's to them. It's to those who might be. Akin to wanting status. And if we're being honest, we all want that. We all do. We're in the house hunting market, and it's so hard to not just think, we just want bigger. We just want better. And if we're true with ourselves in our heart of hearts, it's like, well, we just don't want to be living in that apartment anymore because when we bring people over, it's just kind of, yeah, this is our apartment. It's, it's humble, we know. One day we'll get something bigger. And we think that getting that, attaining that, gives us status. We are not that different from Philippi. There are many things that are proud that we should be proud about to be Americans. But there are so many things status-wise that should be struck down 100% for the sake of Christ. That our ultimate and final allegiance should not be to our country, but should be to our King, Jesus. That Paul later in the book of Philippians will say, you are heavenly citizens. Live out your life as such. So it's to those who might 
desire this status. It is to those who might be colonels, that might be sergeants, that might be all of these different things, senators, governors. They have everything to say. We made it, y'all. But it's to those that Paul says the gospel strikes that down. For if you're in Christ, he'll later say, all that I had, I count it as a loss for the sake of knowing Christ. He says, I count it as rubbish. But he doesn't just write to the saints. He also includes this neat addition that you won't find in hardly any of Paul's other greetings. See, Paul wrote 13 other letters in the New Testament. Some of them pastoral epistles to uh, Timothy and to Titus. But in these general epistles, you think Romans, the 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all of those others, he's writing to the church broadly. And in none of those other letters does he talk about including overseers and deacons. Overseers and deacons. Why would he do that in this then? Why would he do that in Philippians? Why would he draw specific reference to the overseers, to the pastors, and to the deacons? Well, one, we see that in Acts chapter 6, there is this clear distinction that deacons are those who serve the body and that pastors are the ones who oversee and lead the body. Okay, that's helpful, Sean, but why would he include that here? Because there are things that are going on in the Philippian church where Paul knows he needs to give specific information to pastors and deacons. Chapter 4, he tells these, uh, the, these pastors and overseers to encourage these two ladies in your church to be unified in Christ. The end. Next topic. So there are things that Paul wants to reference specifically to give credence to the pastors and the deacons of this church or these churches. Elsewhere in this book, chapter 3, Paul warns them to beware of dogs. Whoa, what? Beware of dogs who will come in and try and teach a different gospel. They will try and teach the church a different gospel apart from the gospel of Jesus. Specifically that of, if you just continue to bank your life on the law and the Old Testament, you're good. You don't need Jesus. Paul says, beware of dogs. Why does he say that? Because in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, as overseers, encouraging the pastors to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Administering oversight. I've got to say, if there were a false teacher to come into our midst, you probably won't see me in a hotter moment than in that moment. We teach the Bible here. We bank our lives on the Bible here. We try to encourage and minister the Bible to our members. We, just as Derek loves the passage in 
Acts, I believe it's Acts chapter 16 or, or 15, somewhere in Acts, where Paul goes and he starts to share this gospel of Jesus and they find themselves in Berea. And instead of just saying, hey man, he's an apostle, so yeah, that sounds good. We're in. No, the Bereans are known for testing what even this apostle is saying in accordance to Scripture. That is what we do as well. That is the role of overseers and deacons. Overseers guard the truth. They proclaim the gospel. They care for the sick. They, as Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, they oversee even the souls of those under their care. Should I avoid the soapbox or not? I'm going to. There is a lot of topic uh, on pastors in Baptist churches, in evangelical churches, in churches in North America, all over the place. What is a pastor is one of the most hot topics. And let me just say, who is a pastor is... What the Bible says. So a pastor is what the Bible says. And a pastor is not just one who gets up and preaches. Though that is a primary and core responsibility. But let me just say, if I'm the pastor who just comes up here and preaches and says, Hey, love y'all. See you next Sunday. You're not a pastor. You're getting a paycheck. You're smiling at people and acting like you care about them. And you don't. And that's not what I want to be at all. So when I see the warning passage in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, that as pastors, you oversee as those who will give an account before the Lord Jesus himself, the souls by which you are accountable. That scares the living daylights out of me. And I take that with utmost responsibility. And so when you think about membership in our church, and you think about, okay, well, what does it mean to be a member of First Baptist Church Eastwood? There's a lot of things that we've got questions still to answer. But let me just tell you, when you are a member of First Baptist Church Eastwood, I have a responsibility of the Lord Jesus himself to shepherd you, to care about your soul, because I know I will give an account for you. So first off, I want to know that you're trusting in Jesus. I, I want to know more than just, hey, when I was seven, I came down front and I prayed a prayer. I want to know, are you walking with him? Do you love him? Does your heart ring out with songs and worship and adoration to him? So there's a big difference between a pastor and a preacher. And there are a lot of churches that have great preachers, but not great pastors. But it's not just the overseers. It's not just the pastors. It's also the deacons. I've been reading an intriguing book about deacons in the church recently. And deacons seek to provide unity within the church, serving under the leadership of pastors. Hear what I said there. Pastors. Deacons and pastors. There's a plurality, a multiple of these offices that is designed for the health and well-being of the pastors and the deacons, 
but ultimately for the church. That's why I'm so grateful for guys like Derek to serve with. And I know we haven't affirmed him as a pastor, but I think of him just like a pastor. Have probably since before we even hired you in many senses. And why do I think that? One, he handles the word of God truthfully. He understands the weightiness of it. And he loves the heck out of you guys. He loves to shepherd. He loves to care for our church. That's what you desire. That's the almost like it's the model of how Jesus desires his church to be. Shepherded by overseers and pastors who love and shepherd the flock of God. And deacons who will serve under them, under their leadership, for the unity and benefit of the church. So with all of these things that will come up later in Philippians, there's a reason why Paul says, hey, I want to also include the overseers and the deacons because y'all know you got some trouble brewing. So I want the church as a whole to know that these overseers, these deacons, have my seal of approval. Not as though they need it. They have it from Jesus himself. As those called of God. That's enough on that. Verse 2. Here's a brief message, a brief summary of where Paul is going to go throughout the rest of this letter to the Philippian church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And every one of the 13 letters, introductions to Paul's letters, he has almost verbatim this exact same greeting. And I don't want us to just think that it's a, uh, a pre-printed letter that you sign at the bottom and say, yeah, hey, I believe that. That's great. No, Paul is thinking very deeply about what this means for the people who are going to hear this word. Not only are they saints, not only are those who are in Christ, but they're in Christ because of the grace of Jesus Christ. The grace of God to send Jesus Christ then provides peace. You see, apart from Christ, we are in utter rebellion against God. That our sin and the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we are not at peace with God. We are rebels against him. We are enemies. We are alienated from him. But here, the promise of the seed of Abraham going and blessing all the nations is being seen and that the Gentiles, those who were cut off in the Old Testament from the commonwealth of the grace of God have now been brought near by the grace of God that has brought peace. So if you hear anything this morning, know that you are a saint. If you are in Christ, you are a saint by and only by the grace of God. And because of that grace of God, there is now peace between you and God. So grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is much that could be said about why Paul ends this greeting with grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
there might be misconception that why is he talking about them as they're two different things? Paul's understanding is very unified. We see this throughout Christian tradition that God is three in one. God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. It is from God. One of my favorite verses is Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love in this way. That while we were still sinners, Christ, the Son, died for us. That reality is then sealed upon us in Ephesians chapter 1 by the Holy Spirit. So for those who are saints, who are in Christ Jesus, who have received the grace and peace from God, the Father, through Jesus, the Son, it's now sealed in them by the Holy Spirit. As Paul will say in Ephesians 1, the guarantee of that for which we wait upon. So this is a gospel-centered greeting. Even in Paul's introduction, he says, I'm a slave of Christ. In saying, this is who I'm writing to, it's because you are in Christ. And the message I send, it's because of the grace and peace delivered in Christ. This is the good news. This is joy. This is hope. And it comes only in Christ. So as we think about advancing the gospel in joy. I want us to just hang our hat on one application. One application. That as saints, we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. I'm stealing from Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Church, one thing about a gospel-centered greeting, that you would walk in the gospel. That's my prayer for you. That you would recognize that you are a saint if you have trusted in Christ. You've received grace and peace through Christ. That no matter what comes, no matter what comes, no matter what comes, no matter what comes, whether imprisonment, whether the death of a loved one, We would recognize that we are in Christ. And let me just say, I cannot imagine that Paul's reminder glosses over the feelings and emotions that come from being in prison. I don't think Paul's saying, hey, just suck it up, guys. Like, just just get over it. Trust the gospel. I don't think that's his posture. But I think what he does say is he's found himself in affliction. He's found himself in troubled times. He's found himself in all of these oppositions. He's found himself in prison. He says, even still, 
even still, advance the gospel in joy. For to live is Christ, to die is gain. Let's walk in a worthy manner. <laughs> walk in a manner worthy of the gospel.